Today's episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by a goddamn peanut. A goddamn peanut. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1945's The Dead of Night and 2016's or 17's Red Christmas. Before we get started, though, I'd just like to talk about a neat little thing. We recently, a few weeks ago now, and another week or two more, now that you're hearing it, saw Justice League. And there were some nice little Easter eggs for horror movie fans, or fans of this podcast in particular. I'm going to try to tell this story without giving too much away. But they need to worry about bringing somebody back from the dead. And Aquaman or somebody else wants to know if he's going to come back changed. Or how do they get going to know he's going to be uncontrollable or what. And then the Flash says what, Kelsey? Is this going to be some kind of pet cemetery thing? (laughs) Which, if you watched our first episode, you know... Is when you bring somebody back to life and they're all evil and murderous. (laughs) And there's a moment where it gets kind of Pet cemetery, and Flash says... Pet cemetery, Pet cemetery. (laughs) They say Pet cemetery in the new Justice League movie three times. Yeah. I I was very surprised and it's a stupid thing to be excited about, but I was really jazzed when I saw it. (laughs) Overall, the movie Justice League... Not very good. Kind of fun. (laughs) How about you? You think the same or different? I got what I wanted out of it. (laughs) I don't think that applies to that many people. Which is? I think the actor who plays the Flash is super, super cute. So he had the best lines. He had the best part. He was definitely the comic relief. Yeah. Ezra, right? Ezra Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He was also the Kevin, and we need to talk about Kevin. He was also in Purse of Being a Wallflower. He's the gay kid. And he's in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them as uh, Credence Barebone with that really bad haircut. Yeah. Yeah. He's He's been in several other things as well, but uh, those are just a few of the things. Ezra Miller, he's a pretty, pretty man. He's a cute guy. And, And he gets some of the best lines in the movie, including the three mentions of Pet Cemetery, so that was probably the best thing to come out of that movie. <laughs> Although, like I said, it was fun. So getting right into it, our first movie we're going to talk about is 1945's Dead of Night. It actually has several credited directors because this is a... Anthology film. This is an anthology film held together by a single plot So it was directed by Alberto Cavalcanti, Charles Crichton, Basil Dearden, and Robert Hamer. And it has writing credits from E.F. Benson, John Baines, Angus McPhail, T.E.B. Clark, 
and H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells specifically wrote the golfing story. Kelsey, what is Dead of Night about? It is about a man, an architect, who is sent to a home to look at it to figure out how to make it better. And when he gets in there, things are very strange, and we find out that it is because he has dreamt of this entire thing in the past. And one person in particular does not believe him. It is the doctor. The psychiatrist, yeah. Who's very much like Freud. Yeah. uh (laughs) He's definitely supposed to be like Freud. Uh But at the same time, he doesn't believe in dreams meaning anything, so I guess he's not really the same as Freud. Well, it's about telling the future. Okay. The rest of the people believe him because they have all had experiences that lead them to believe that the supernatural does exist. And so we experience their stories. So sit back and relax and watch the movie if you haven't already. And when we come back, we'll talk about 1945's Dead of Night. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne. Up next on this Halloween night, we have a collection of spooky tales from England, all rolled into one extremely entertaining movie. And since it made its debut in 1945, this movie has also been considered one of the best of all the spooky films that have ever been made. The title is Dead of Night. It's comprised of short stories by writers such as H.G. Wells, directors like Alberto Cavalcanti, and Charles Crichton, and actors including Sir Michael Redgrave and Roland Culver. It's a film that revolves around an architect who is invited to spend a weekend in a country home. When he arrives, he realizes the home and all the other guests who are there have been part of a vivid reoccurring dream he's been having. And when he admits that to the others in the house, several of them begin to recount strange dreams that they've had. Five very creepy stories in all, including one about a ventriloquist dummy with a mind of his own. So here with the great cast, it also includes Googie Withers and a 14-year-old Sally Ann House from England in 1945, Dead of Night. Kelsey, 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 what did you think of Dead of Night? I loved it. Yeah? It's a little slow sometimes. Sure. It's a little long. Mm -hmm. It's longer than it needs to be. But I thought it was great. I think it's a little early to have been this, but I think it could have been a twilight zone movie very that's much. that's what it felt like was the twilight zone movie a yes. bunch of little vignettes that weren't too long that weren't whole movie length that were all linked together in a certain way kind of like the actual twilight zone movie was i also liked it actually i liked it a lot i'm surprised it's not more of a classic it wasn't very scary in any way shape or form it's creepy this is the stretch to our horror movie definition i feel absolutely oh i totally disagree there's only a few things that are like like there's one story that's a comedy it's just a straight comedy except for the except for the little twist bits but it's like the golfing story that's just a straight comedy i disagree okay well first of all i think the entire i think the film is horror i think it's light on the horror for our standards because from our perspective it's like the wolfman when i watched right. the wolfman i asked you was this supposed to be scary back then and i feel like a lot of the stuff in this movie was supposed to be very scary for the time maybe creepy but, but there's uh, no like there's a lot of creepy stuff like there's a lot really of, yeah wow i liked it for completely different reasons i was charmed by it more than anything because you had phrases like such fun charades. 
and things like that. Like it's full of that kind of stuff. And and like I said, there's one segment that's just in my mind just a straight comedy. I'd say the. I think it's mostly comedic, but there's a creepy element to it. Yeah, absolutely. But this is like I said, it stretches our definition of horror because most people consider horror to be scary things and not necessarily creepy things and this has more of the creep factor than it does the scare factor there's nothing where you go ah i don't know the final scene it's pretty crazy yeah okay sure sure i'll give you that one anyway we'll get around to that let's start by going through the different narratives first of all there's the linking narrative kelsey i think you did a pretty good job of explaining that one it's just these people trying to convince the psychiatrist that the supernatural is real. And he's trying to find a rational explanation for everything. And the architect is saying, no, I, I dreamed this before. And he starts calling out things like... A beautiful brunette will walk through the door and not have any money. There's a sixth person who comes in later. Can you describe this late arrival? It's an attractive girl with dark hair. She comes in quite unexpectedly. And says something about not having any money. A penniless brunette, eh? Yes, uh, that happens. The One of the character's wives shows up and can't afford to pay the cab. The psychiatrist will break his glasses after the host mentions somebody that he's never heard of before. You break those glasses of yours, and then, quite suddenly, the room goes dark. Then, Foley, you say something. Something about the death of a man I've never heard of. At the death of someone, the he's, death never of someone he's never heard of before. And he says that the girl's going to leave suddenly. Yes. Because you leave here quite soon, quite suddenly. You're certain of that? Absolutely certain. Yeah, and all these things happen, and so they're like, ah, aha, prove that. <laughs> uh, and we'll get to the ending of the linking narrative at the end of this. But it's a little bit odd. Until you know exactly what's going on, the architect acts really, really weird. Now, going back and... We watched the first scene again because I was looking for a particular line. And going back, it all makes sense. This is a movie that, you know, you could benefit from a rewatch, I think. Not, like, greatly. It's not like Memento or anything. But... The first five minutes, you're very confused. The first five minutes or so, yeah, you have no idea what's going on. When the host says, oh, yeah, that they've probably... uh, They're probably drinking tea. The architect goes, yes. Yes, they have. I expect they started tea. Yes. Yes, they have. Like, they started drinking tea. Like, that's... He, he acts really weird until you find out why, and that's because and he's he, dreamed all of it before. And when he gets introduced to everybody, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't take it. Right. doesn't shake anybody's hand. I literally wrote, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't get the explanation, and then they, then they explain it to you. You're like, oh, okay, I get it now. So I called this linking narrative the architect's dream. What would you call it? I think that's a pretty good name the for it. The architect's dream. Pretty good title. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really tell you too much, but ooh, what? why is it important that an architect dreams? <laughs> what is important about his dream? It's a great premise, I think, for linking all these stories together. I think it's pretty believable, except for the fact that when he says all that stuff, only one person believes him. No, they all believe Eventually, him. Eventually. But at the beginning, there's one lady that goes, well, I believe him. In fact, there's no evidence that you ever dreamed this dream at all, is there? None whatever. I haven't a scrap of proof. Personally, I don't need any. I believe what you say, Mr. Craig. 
I believe you really have dreamt about us all. And then they all end up having these stories. And it's like, dude, were you keeping this in a in your back pocket? Had you not told anyone about this story before this night? That's the weakest part about this linking narrative. But other than that, I thought it was it was pretty great, actually. Uh, it, it's a really good concept to get all these stories told. And so they're all told in flashback. Except the linking narrative, the architect's dream, which is told in flash forward. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. We'll get to that later. I do totally agree with the doctor I wrote here. It's easy to prove him wrong when you can write the script, though. They constantly prove the psychiatrist wrong. And yeah, of course they do. There's somebody who's writing a script and all he has to do is just write in that it happened. But there's if somebody just told you these stories and didn't have the proof that the architect has, then yeah, there's rational explanations for all this shit. Except maybe the a few of these things, maybe not. But... <laughs> The ventriloquist being nuts, for instance. The guy who hallucinated. Like, just shit like that. You know, you see things and your mind places them at weird points in your memory. And that that's what... Deja vu. That's what deja vu is. Thank you. In any case, I do totally agree with the doctor. But that's not the way the story was written. <laughs> the doctor is going to be proven wrong, even by himself at one point. I did say that the architect is a pretty bad actor. <laughs> Aww. When he acts so slow and thoughtful. He does that a lot, obviously, because he's like, I've seen this before. It's a little much. It's a little much. You can always write You can always write it off as saying that he is... Well, I don't want to ruin it. The first story that IMDb refers to it as Hearst Driver, which I called it Room for One Inside. Right? Much better name. What happens in Room for One Inside, Kelsey? This guy is a race car driver? He's a race car driver. They're all rich, fancy people. And he has an accident, uh, which leads him to being taken to the hospital. He's really badly hurt, but he has this lovely nurse who takes good care of him. Uh-huh. Just like to. Just like in An American Werewolf in London. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> they end up getting married. Like, they've known each other for like five minutes and they get married. But anyway, I guess it was the 40s. It was different. <laughs> anyway, in the hospital... According to Chris, this is a hallucination. Yeah, no, they talk about how it was a hallucination. Nobody mentions that it's a dream. At some point, he opens up the windows. He opens up the drapes to his windows, and he looks outside, and he sees another crash. Or it is the car crash. He kept dreaming about the car crash. but he just sees a black horse-drawn hearse. Then he looks downstairs, and he sees... A hearse with a horse, like really old fashioned, and there's a guy with a top hat who's the driver. And he says, Room for one inside, sir. Just room for one inside, sir. And then when he is released from the hospital, a bus pulls up and he's about to get on the bus. And the same exact guy says, Room for one more inside. Room for one inside. Just room for one inside, sir. And he's so caught off guard that he steps back and he doesn't get in and the bus driver's like whatever and he closes the door and drives off and we just hear no we see it we see it oh we see it it's real bad the practical effects oh, i don't remember that at all terrible you don't remember <laughs> the awful bus falling over the side no oh my god it looked like a toy car it probably was it was it totally was on a model and it looked so bad yeah uh-huh it looked real bad but that's it that's the story short and sweet 
that... He foresees his death and escapes death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is very unlike Final, Final Destination. Destination. <laughs> if it followed the Final Destination plot, death would be coming for him again. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of horror movies that took a lot from this movie. I mean, you could assume that people can come up with their own stuff as much as you want, but... Well, there's parallel thinking. There's also stories that are part of our collective folklore that we all take from. So not everything's original, but yeah, this is pretty dang early. Mm -hmm. It's also a story that seems like it could fit into one of those scary stories to tell... At a sleepover. Or oh, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it feels like you said. It fe- I mean, most anthology films do, but this one in particular felt very Twilight Zone or very Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes. Yeah. The next story is referred to as Christmas Party, but I called it Sardines. <laughs> Sardines is a game they play, which is just like hide and seek. Don't you know about sardines? It's a sort of hide and seek. Except when you find the person that's hiding, you hide with them. And you can move somewhere else if you need to. But the game ends when everyone's packed together in the same place. Like sardines. Yes. And the first person that goes and hides is the only person to hide. The rest of them are all counting to go and find you. Yeah, yeah. When you start. But then once the first person finds you, then, Mm -hmm. yeah, they hide with you. I wrote that I love the woman playing the piano during sardines. She's just like, oh, the kids are having fun. And da, 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 da. and she plays a little musical melody to go along with the game that they're playing. That's diegetic sound right there. She's one of the only adults. There's a butler at one point. There's some other random woman. But this house full of children and two of them older, one being our woman, our girl. And this other really creepy boy. What was his name again? Jimmy. Jimmy something, Watson. Jimmy Watson or something like that, who talks like this, I'll tell you a story. Oh yes, this is a British movie, in case we didn't mention that. So, what happens during the game of sardines? It's clear that the boy likes her, and the boy finds her first, and he tells her this ghost story about how the house that they live in is haunted. And she doesn't believe it, but he tells her there was a little girl and a boy, and the girl strangled her brother. Believe it or not, this house is haunted. I don't believe it. The boy tries to kiss her, and she runs away. Uh Uh-huh. Playing's hard to get. Yes. And she she winds up in a nursery. Yeah. And there's a little boy in there. Mm -hmm. And he tells her that he's staying there with his sister, but his sister is very mean to him. Yeah. So she sings him a lullaby to put him to sleep. And then they call her name because they can't find her. They give up. Uh-huh. And she comes down and she says, oh, I didn't know anybody was staying the night. And the lady's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, yes, he's sleeping up there with his sister. And then she says the name. And they're all like, oh, you talk- He's been dead for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and- It's one of those stories. She has an amazing response. She says- I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. Oh, hold me tight. Hold me tight. It's really over the top. (laughs) I have that written down here, too. I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. Oh, Oh, please hold me tight. Oh, hold me tight. So, interesting fact. This story is a true story. Not necessarily the story of the game of sardines and coming across the ghost boy, but the boy, Francis Kent 
was really murdered by his sister, Constance, in 1860. So that really did happen. They didn't have any evidence, so they didn't actually put her on trial for another five years. And apparently, I don't know how true this is, but apparently it was very, very popular in England and ended up leading to an interest in detective skills and the like because, you know, they couldn't find the evidence to convict her and all that. And it's so it's therefore partially responsible for leading to things like Sherlock Holmes. I thought that was pretty interesting. There's also a movie called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, The Murder at Roadhill House, which is the name of the actual house that came out in 2011 based on a book written by Kate Summerscale in 2008. So we could theoretically talk about this very murder on our show. I just thought that that was interesting. But that's why we watched it, because one of the one of the vignettes was at Christmas time. Yes, and this whole it. thing, that's it. We'll get to our next one, which is Red Christmas, and that actually is more of a Christmas horror movie. <laughs> this is also where her mom shows up and says, Such fun, charades! But Mother, I can't. You see, this is Mr. Craig, and I'm one of the characters in his dream. Oh, how do you do? Such fun, charades. <laughs> because they're all telling her what happened. Like... Oh, this man thinks we're all characters in his dream, which is super creepy when you think uh about it. A strange man showed up and he said he dreamed about me. (laughs) Yeah, and and, I mean, they totally recognize the fact that we could just be characters in a person's dream. How fucked up is that shit? (laughs) Such fun charades. Yeah, and then she... Oh, so the, the main guy, the guy whose dream this is all starting with, tells them before the mom shows up, because this is what happens. This is why the mom mom's response is so over the top Uh and ridiculous the man tells them i need to leave this house and they all go why and he explains something is going to lead me to unspeakable evil in this house Uh i have to go and the doctor convinces him to stay because he totally he thinks that this will break him of his delusion yeah so he stays and every time he tries to go somebody stops him again Yes, and they eventually ask him, you know, what is this unspeakable evil that you're going to be taken to do? And he says, I'm going to murder someone. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't alarm anyone for some reason. Get the stranger reason. out of the house. Get yeah. a different architect. Exactly. Something. And then when the mom shows up, she's in a real hurry. I don't remember why. Oh, well, because she was late to something. Well, but she was also really worried because her daughter just disappeared on her and she didn't know where she went. Her uncle's birthday. Well, actually, he's her godfather, but she always calls him uncle. You understand. They're on their way to their <laughs> uncle's birthday. <laughs> and she's just kind of bl- brushing off everything everybody's saying and they're trying to explain like crazy shit's happening and she just doesn't care and then the the young the daughter says oh yes and this man says he's going to kill one of us and the mom goes you see mr craig is going to hit me savagely oh well i'm sure he can hit somebody else instead so great it's really funny (laughs) so the next story up is the haunted mirror which is basically what i called it too and this one starts in a really interesting way. So the posh woman is telling a story about how she got a gift for her husband and how excited she was because about having so the gift. it's so hard to buy things for men because they have everything they want. Yes, you know how difficult it is choosing presents for a man. They always seem to have everything they want. You know how difficult it is choosing presents for a man. They always seem to have everything they want. <laughs> Commentary. <laughs> so this rich couple, I wrote... 
are exhausting in their conversation while he's putting up the mirror. But throughout the whole damn thing, she is fucking brutal. She is hilarious. Yes. And awful. Uh huh. And amazing. All at the same time. She calls their wedding presents, cha- or their, what's going to be their wedding presents, a chamber of horrors. We've got some perfectly frightful presents. No, darling, I really think we'll have to turn that spare room of ours into a chamber of horrors. Like, she's she's really great. I love her. She's one of those characters. The, oh, how droll. You know, one of those type characters. Really just, just snake-tongued and sharp as a whip. Is that the phrase? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Correct me. Send us an email at podcemetery at gmail.com or at podcemetery on Twitter. So pretty quickly, I immediately was just like, well, the guy who made Oculus saw this movie. Yeah, it's really interesting. So what happens is she gets him this beautiful mirror and they put it up. It's it's for his birthday or for their wedding. It's for his birthday. Yeah. And... He starts to see strange things in it. And at first, what he sees is himself in another house. Another room. Uh, yeah. And it's this, because they have like this apartment or something like that, that they're living in, this upscale he's apartment. Living in. That he's living in. They li- don't live together. Yeah. It was the 40s. <laughs> and he finds himself in this beautiful gothic style, like bedroom with a four poster bed. And a fireplace and, and everything. But it's obviously not where he is. And he thinks it's like a trick mirror or something. Like maybe there's a print behind the glass. And so it gives the faint impression that there's another room. I don't know how he expected this mirror to work. But <laughs> but it does. And he just starts to go nuts. He slowly starts to just go crazy and become obsessed with it. Until she stands in the mirror with him. And says, there, can you see anything? And he's like. Yeah, I don't see you. It's worse than ever. You're not there. But of course I'm there. I tell you, you're not. In the other room, I'm alone. But he still sees himself in that room, but eventually everything's fine and he calms down. You just you just skipped over my favorite line. What's your this, what's though? your favorite line? So he is, he's going crazy, and she notices that something is up with her fiance. Obviously, he's different. He's snappy, irritable. Something is up. But when she asks him about it, he says, no, no, it's nothing. And she says, I was so busy with the wedding, I didn't really have time to pay attention to him. (laughs) I noticed that Peter seemed preoccupied and a bit jumpy and irritable. But I thought it was just eve of wedding nerves. Anyhow, I was so busy, I didn't have time to think much about it. She's so great. I love her so much. She's so awesome. But yes, yeah, so then she's like, no, we're going to get you to get over this after they've gotten married. No, they no, haven't gotten married. still yep. before the wedding. Because he, oh, that's right. Because he says, I don't think we should get married because you are going to leave me because I'm going crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she says, we're going to break you of this. So she stands him in front of the mirror. And as Chris says, he doesn't see her at first, but she eventually, she grabs his hand. That's what it happens. And it yes. Pulls him she back grabs in. his hand and then he's like, oh, okay. So his mind corrects and it's like, there's somebody touching me, which I don't see in the mirror. It makes him see her in the mirror and the room goes away. And he is suddenly cured, although he avoids the mirror for a while, for a long while. My biggest problem is that I understand he becomes obsessed with it, 
they aren't clear about how quickly that happens, but it's like, for me, just take the mirror down. Right. <laughs> just get yeah. rid of it. Uh-huh. But he, he's But it's an expensive it. mirror. It was a gift. And it becomes more clear when you know what happened. Right. So after the marriage, after they after they get married, he looks in the mirror for some reason. I can't remember. She goes on a trip. Oh, right. And so he's by himself. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have her grounding him mm-hmm. anymore. And he starts to hallucinate into the mirror again. And how does she find out that he's going crazy while she's she gone? She goes into the shop because... Mm-hmm. Yeah. She sees the four-poster bed. That he describes in that's this, in that room, yes. In the same shop where she bought the mirror. Right. Does, the shop does, owner, does he accuse her of anything at this point? Or no, not, not until she yet. Gets home. Yeah, okay, yeah. Go, go, go ahead. So the shop owner explains that the mirror and the bed came from the same auction. And nobody had ever used either of them except for the original owner. And the original owner was a cripple and believed that his wife was cheating on him. Yeah. And he killed her. Yes. And so the idea is that this guy's ghost is within the mirror. Right. Possessing our guy. Yes. <laughs> and so she rushes home and finds him there. And he does accuse her of cheating on him because she went somewhere with this fellow who they mentioned in the beginning and they both make fun of. Be careful. I'm very fond of guy. Meaning that it pleases your disgusting feminine vanity to have him on a string. Spaniel would do just as well. Mm-hmm. Spaniels don't have nice, comfortable fences. In the very beginning of this scene, of this uh, vignette, because she's just fucking cruel and mean and totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and she points that out and he's like, yeah, that's just like a trick to get me off the scent, basically. And he does end up going for her and he he reaches out to strangle her. He starts losing his mind and she starts freaking out and she... Breaks the mirror. Breaks the mirror, which instantly drops the spell. And he is totally fine again. And she's just like, he's, he's like, what what happened? What'd you do that for? And she's like, uh, it's irreparable. And she just starts ripping it apart. There's nothing we can do. It's totally a piece of crap. And she just tears it off the wall. And what you guys have to remember is that she's telling this story to a group of people. She's basically saying, my, my husband, husband tried, tried to, to kill, kill me. me. Yeah. <laughs> And everyone's just like, oh, how interesting. What an interesting anecdote. (laughs) Right. And the husband might be hearing this story for the first time. Because when he was possessed, he had no idea what was going on. And she didn't tell him. But we get no indication of that. So you can see why the linking story kind of doesn't make too much sense. But But if you have not seen Oculus. Oculus is pretty good. Oculus is awesome. Yeah. But then I saw this movie. And I'm like, oh, you totally stole your story. <laughs> if you ever saw it, we didn't see it until we had never just seen now. It, it's true. But it, it is extremely like this movie. It's not exactly. He put his own spin on it for sure. Yeah, uh-huh. But it definitely and a modern spawned day spin from and, it. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally. It's at this point that the psychiatrist starts to explain what was actually happening and what the psychosis was or et cetera. And he uses some big words. And the old lady, the grandma who's there, <laughs> sa- tells him to repeat himself slowly in words that they can all understand. Words that are one syllable. Yeah. <laughs> Do I make myself clear? I'm totally at sea. You wouldn't like to start again, would you? Very slowly and in words of one syllable. I thought that was really adorable. Everyone, everyone in this movie is just fantastic. I love also, everyone. <laughs> also, the old lady has a great moment where the wife who shows up and can't afford the cab yeah. doesn't understand what's going on. And so the mom, or whatever she is, the old lady tries to fill her in. 
and she just says brief things like, oh, this man thinks we're all yeah. in a dream. <laughs> this man tried to kill his wife, and the wa- the lady's just like, what? In case you got to the theater late. <laughs> Yeah, I think I better start again. Yeah. All right, so the next one is the golfing story, which I called Mary in the Bag, because they talk about how they have Mary in the bag when they win this contest. It's about two men who are best of friends. They are they get along famously. This is the silliest story. It is. All. It is. This is the one that was written by H. G. Wells. Oh, <laughs> Well, it's just a fun little romp, and I'll tell you why it's important and why it would have been relevant to people of the time a little bit later. But these two men who are great friends, they hate each other when they golf. They are amazing rivals when it comes to golf, and it's the only time that they are at each other's throats. And they both fall in love with the same woman, and they're trying to figure out how to deal with this because she loves them both equally, too. So they say. So the story says. It's and so dumb. she's just sitting at the bar, completely silent, with one man on the other side, talking about her like she's not even there. She's such a useless character. Yeah. And then they're like, I know, we'll play golf for her. And she's like, why didn't we think of that before? George, I've got it. What? We'll play for her. Tomorrow morning. 18 holes. Match play. The loser to vanish from the scene. Forever. Pretty there, man. Of course. Why didn't we think of it sooner? <laughs> terrible it's pretty bad it's pretty bad so what happens is they play golf and the older gentleman he supposedly cheats we never get well yeah we do he does confirm that he cheats later on in the story yeah that he cheated which causes his friend to just walk off into the lake and drown yeah that's what i'm talking about it's creepy as shit he's just like well if i can't be with her might as well just kill myself. I think it's creepier in in a movie because if you think about it just being a written down story, a little tale, it's about a guy who just like, well, and not being able to get his girl, he walked straight into the lake and never came out. Like, it's like this funny kind of like story. That if he- I read that story, I'd be just as fucked up as <laughs> it was when I saw well, it Well, you know how they just say things matter of factly sometimes because that's not the point. This is what just what gets us to the rest of the actual story. So they're like, yeah, don't focus on this. He walks into the lake. And commits suicide, but yes, continue. Yes, he commits suicide. And the older man who now gets to marry Mary, he starts seeing him as a ghost. Well, first he hears him. After he gets married, he goes to play golf and he hears him by the same hole where the guy killed himself. Yes, yeah, he goes back to golfing. And then he's at the bar at the country club where they where they used to play golf. And he's basically become an alcoholic. Yeah, and because he and he stopped playing golf for a long time, but then he finally started again, and that's when he hears the guy's voice for the first time, and and he finally sees his buddy who just appears, right? Heavens, I thought you were dead. So I am, old man, as dead as a stymie. Two large whiskers, Fred. You mean a quadruple, sir? Uh, no, 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 separate glasses, of course. One for him. Fred can't see me or hear me. And he starts talking to him, and the bartender's like, you are nuts, right? <laughs> He's too drunk. Yeah. So I wrote, I love the dignified argument at the bar with the ghost. (laughs) It's only you I'm haunting. It's time you gave somebody else a turn. I've had it. Not bad, am I, for a beginner? George Parrott, Handicap 18. I think it's 
perfectly despicable. Not nearly as despicable as cheating at God. You haven't the vestige of proof. Yes, I have. It's on the record. What record? The Recording Angels record. It shows there that you took five for the 18th. I just thought that was really cute. The two of these guys playing off of each other were really cute. The Brits are the best. They yeah. Everything they do is so proper. And so the ghost tries to convince his buddy that he will stop haunting him if he gives up golf and Mary. He agrees to marry, which is totally fucked up. Because Mary is such a pointless thing. Yes. She, she's literally just an excuse for them to have had an argument. But but he, he doesn't give up golf because golf is their life or what have you. And he admits that he cheated, uh, which the buddy didn't get before. And so the buddy's like, fine, this will do. And he goes to leave, but he can't remember the hand gestures to disapparate. Good. Yes? I've forgotten how to vanish. You know, man, this, this is shocking. I thought the whole time he was making it up. Yeah. I didn't realize it was a, like a real thing. I thought he was just fucking with his friend. Yeah, it was legitimately, he was just, ah, 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 ah. He, he totally could. All the hand gestures were completely fake. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, it's real. He can't go away. And so they spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. And this is on the wedding night. Oh, so, yeah, so the main guy is like, well, if you can't disapparate, fucking marrying Mary, like, I'm not giving her up. Right. But the guy says, well, if you do, I can't leave six feet from you. Yeah, if I don't disappear, I can't, I have to stay within six feet of you. And so they spend all this time with the two of them side by side, which is fine because they're buddies, but it becomes a problem when they get married and at the wedding. Then when they get home sex. and he wants to have sex on their wedding night and, and this guy has to stay next to him. And so he tries to figure out how to trick him, right? Like, oh, maybe I can get inside without him. And then the dude just appears in the room. And he, oh, come on. <laughs> and until finally he's like, well, have you tried this? And then dude disappears. Yeah, so he he does the same hand gestures that the other guy was doing, but he does something different, and he disappears. <laughs> and then the other guy's like, well, uh, I guess I get married, which doesn't make a lot of sense because he's a ghost. Right, yeah. And no the, one can see him except for the other guy. Well, who knows what he's going to do to marry. Oh God! There, I don't know what's the what's the implications there. I I got the sense that they had switched that they had swapped places. Yes, that um, that when the guy disappeared, his spirit disappeared, but the dude stayed. And so Mary is just gonna be like, oh, I guess I got the other one now. Well, maybe maybe he got his old body too. Like he so they just swap spirits or something like that. I don't know. I really don't know. What I can tell you is that Parrot and Potter. They are uh, Basil Radford and Naughton Wayne. They are versions of Charters and Caldecott from The Lady Vanishes, which Alfred Hitchcock made in 1938. Uh, it was so popular that these two people, Radford and Wayne, played a version of these two characters over and over again in lots of other things. Uh, and they were obsessed with sports. And so they took these characters that the culture at the time would be able to recognize and put them in the movie. Kind of like when Jay and Silent Bob are in Scream 3. It's kind of like that, where they, you know, if you if you just saw the movie and didn't know the context, it would be, what is this about? But knowing the context, you're like, oh, it's a scary story, but it's these guys, so it's silly. And it's a it's like a silly ghost story because it's these comedy characters that we all know and love. But they just changed their names for this just so they couldn't get sued. But if it's these two characters playing buddies that like sports, 
they couldn't be sued. Now, the next story, the last story, is the ventriloquist dummy, which is pretty probably much also the, what I called it. Probably one of the scarier ones. Yeah, it's kind of twisted. Mm-hmm. Long story short, there's a ventriloquist who is very accomplished, and his dummy turns out to be supposedly possessed and tries to jump ship to a different ventriloquist but that ventriloquist wasn't having any of it it caused our ventriloquist the main character to attack the other ventriloquist and he winds up in jail and that's how our guy the psychiatrist met him is because his friend a lawyer asked him to analyze this guy and say why is he so crazy and the guy's like I will tell you everything you want if you just get me that fucking dummy. And he does. And then he destroys the dummy. But what happens? He becomes the dummy. Yes. So when he destroys the dummy, the the psychiatrist is upset because it might prevent their psychological breakthrough that they were looking for and uh, any evidence that they might possibly have. But what ends up happening is the dummy ends up taking over the body of the ventriloquist. That's how close they are. And when the dummy is destroyed, that's where his spirit goes. And the guy becomes the dummy. Why, hello, Sylvester. I've been waiting for you. And the psychiatrist says it's the closest thing that he's ever seen to actually the supernatural, but that it is explainable. It's the most severe case of dissociative identity disorder he's ever seen. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Is there a difference between disassociative disorder and multiple personality disorder? Dissociative identity disorder? I think they're the same thing. Multiple personality disorder is not an actual thing that they okay, say whatever. anybody has Okay, you anymore. know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, they yeah, are the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know that they knew about disassociative disorder before. I don't know if he actually calls it that. That's what I'm telling you it is. But, Either way, yeah, they're talking. They're yeah. talking about disassociative, dis- nah, whatever it's called. Uh-huh. Multiple personality disorder is a lot easier to say. <laughs> because I just looked it up. Ed Gein didn't kill people until the fifties, so that was ten years after Ed Gein didn't have DID. He pretended to be his mom. He walked around in her clothes and stuff. Right, but I don't think it's because he thought he was her. Was it? Maybe you're right. I don't know. Besides the point. Yeah, no, it was really early on. And that's why he like, says this is well it's before... the clearest case that you'll ever see. He says something something similar to that, where he's like, if you, if you ever want proof that this exists, this is the guy. One of the most complete examples of dual identity in the history of medical science. So they're writing about it, but I don't think people are convinced it really happened. Especially since in the, in the 70s when Sybil comes out, nobody believes that that's actually true. So it was a long time before people started taking DID seriously. Because Psycho is when we, when yeah, the they public talk about was it. pretty much made aware of it. They talk about it in Psycho, which was in... 1960. 1960. It was so, right after it really yeah, happened. With 15 mean. years after this movie was written. So you can imagine. Yeah, but hey, this is a... A forward-thinking psychiatrist who has a rational explanation for everything. Dissociative identity disorder has actually a really long history. And it goes back to the 1600s when they talk about dissociation. They don't know what it is. Nobody is actually diagnosed with 
dissociative identity disorder or anything like that. But they recognize that there's something wrong, right, with, with people. And <laughs> it was in the late 1900s, or sorry, late 1800s, that they started really focusing in on it. And the first person ever diagnosed with having multiple personalities was Clara Norton Fowler, who, who they called Christine Beauchamp, because I guess to protect her privacy, that was in 1906. Mm. So they did start diagnosing way back then, but it was obviously wasn't a big seller, but it was very common to be misdiagnosed as just straight up schizophrenia. Uh, there were a lot of stories that people were really interested in that featured these sorts of things. And that's a lot with like, we talk about the Wolfman where you think you're a werewolf and you think you're a man. And so that's those sorts of things, Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like these stories all deal with identity issues. So that's, I think where society was around those times. So there was, it was kind of like an air everywhere, but we didn't really start diagnosing people with this sort of thing until the eighties. Cause people that had, what at the time was shell shock or battle fatigue, which we now know as post-traumatic stress, were misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic. That's another thing. You'd use the term schizophrenic for people that had multiple personalities, and that's absolutely not true. They might also have schizophrenia, but dissociative identity disorder is actually something completely different. So, yeah, I mean, it existed, but it might not have been completely accepted by the psychological culture at the time. Anyway... I thought that that was a really interesting story. And it's up to this point, the creepiest thing so far, in my opinion. See, I think it's really difficult to talk about because I fully can see people seeing this in theaters back in the 40s. Yeah. And it being scary. Well, they definitely filmed this segment above all of them to be freaky. The other ones are like, huh, that's weird. And then this is the twist. He was dead for many years. And you're like, ooh, chills, right? This is like, no, it's filmed in the moment to be really fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. With the with the dummy, who, by the way, was actually a famous ventriloquist. Not the ventriloquist character. The voice was done by a different person. Did you notice they did a really good job making it seem like the ventriloquist character was doing the voice? He would move his mouth over so often and and you'd see. No, it's another person entirely doing that voice of the dummy. That's very interesting. And I kind of loved the ambiguity throughout it. Right. You're never really certain if the dummy is actually alive or not. Which I think is important because this is the psychiatrist's tale. And his conclusion is that, no, the dummy's not real. This dude just had DID, which manifested in the form of this puppet. But then when the puppet was destroyed, it had nowhere else to go. And it ended up taking over that that man's psyche. So that's the rational explanation for this. But the spooky supernatural explanation is that he really existed. And when his vessel was destroyed, took over the man's body pretty cool and he the guy says yeah that's the closest i ever got to the supernatural that's it for the vignettes but the linking narrative still has more to to talk about kelsey what happens at the end of this linking narrative shit gets nuts yeah (laughs) so remember that this all starts because he told tells them i've dreamt all this before yeah and throughout he keeps reminding the audience that he has dreamt all of it before 
But all of a sudden, you realize that he is in a dream because he starts going through all of their vignettes, their stories. Uh He starts running through them and they're all linking together and there is a lot of freaky shit happening in here so about it, <laughs> he ends up killing the doctor yeah because remember he said i want to know i must know what this unspeakable evil is i'm going to kill someone i must know apparently that's intriguing to some people anyway so he ends up killing the doctor and i think that he runs away and he starts running through all of their stories the characters are shouting crazy things like, we're your friends. We won't hurt you. And it's very clear yeah. that they do want to hurt him. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of laughing and just crazy looks from actors. So, all, all of the actors that he's met and countered are all in these dreams and they've all gone nuts. With two the things about this. Number one, assuming that this is where the movie ends, this would likewise be a story where is he just crazy somehow or is this really happening to him just like kind of all these other stories and that's the narrative that the psychiatrist puts down is that no these are just psychoses of various sorts that's really interesting that yeah you took it that way because i never questioned that or or are you are you actually experiencing them just like with the dummy is that just did or is there actually a spirit in that dummy that's kind of the the narrative running throughout this entire thing the other little bit is that they were going to pull some stories from this. I think it was definitely the golfing story. And I think maybe the Christmas story or something else like that. But they couldn't because of this last scene. The movie's an hour and 45 minutes long. It's a very long movie, especially for the time. But they couldn't remove any of the vignettes because they all appear at the end. Yeah. And apparently they had tried it and test audiences were like, What's all this going on? And they were so confused by the end that they put those vignettes back in. And it exists as it exists today. And it's terrifying. So he's trying to escape all these people that are running after him. And in the very last scene, he winds up in some room. And the dummy is sitting on the floor. And he can't go out the door because the door is surrounded by people and they've got these creepy smiles on their face and they're just staring at him. Mm -hmm. And then the dummy comes to life and that is super creepy looking. And I think he goes to strangle him in bed and then he wakes up. Yes. This is where it gets really interesting. He realizes that it was all a dream, just like he said it was within the dream. This is just that dream again. It's the same dream he has over and over again. Except his wife is waking him up, telling him he got a phone call, that somebody's invited them out to a house to take a look at it. It's important to remember that he never remembers the dream when he wakes up. He just has this vague feeling that all of this stuff is familiar. And so the credits roll, (laughs) which there are credits at the end, which for 1945 is really interesting uh, because... The trend at the time was to do them all in the beginning, which they had some in the beginning. The credits roll over the first scene playing again. The movie loops back on itself and theoretically could be watched in repetition over and over and over again. But I I think what the intended meaning of the ending is that not that it's cyclical, that it's a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream, but that this is the time where he's really going to do it. This That's is the what time you think? He, yes. Because we see we see him wake up. That's interesting. I left the movie feeling super creeped out 
Because I thought he was just stuck in a fucking loop. Right. That's totally, absolutely acceptable. Like, 100% you can can interpret it that way. I was like, okay, is it supposed to be that he's dead? Is it supposed to be that he's in a coma? Right. Or is he just stuck in an infinite loop of crazy-ass scary dreams? Which is really creepy, right? No, (laughs) I, I really like that interpretation. But I also think that since we saw the ritual of him waking up from the dream in the morning, we met his wife who wasn't in the dream previously. Like, did he dream about his whole day? No, he just dreamed about showing up there. That's all we saw of the dream previously. And that's, it cuts immediately to that point again when they try to recreate that first scene or when they actually recreate that first scene. So I think this is real life at this point. And it's exactly copying what happened in the dream because as we all know from all those stories, you can tell the future with your dreams. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty interesting. Lightning round, do you have anything? Or did we get through everything for you? I mean, there are a couple things. There's only one thing that really stood out to me. Yeah. It bothered me every time it happened. And it happened several times. So the doctor is kind of a rotund man. And his head is equally rotund. He has comically small glasses. And they break when they fall? (laughs) No. Every time he puts them on, it is extremely apparent that they don't fit his head they are such well they fake weren't glasses. for him he like never really wore them at he any time he puts them on constantly but he, then he takes them off constantly he's not actually just comfortably wearing them it was really distracting every time i was like they don't fit his head where is the props guy what is this or costumes someone Fix this. And then it dawned on me that, like, maybe it was supposed to be a joke because he's supposed to be a Freudian character. I'm like, all right, but I think it's still stupid. All right, I have a few things. I also commented, I didn't get to it when we were talking about it, but the vignette of the dummy, the ventriloquist dummy, is a story of a man telling a story of himself reading a written affidavit of a story of a ventriloquist. (laughs) I thought that that was pretty interesting. Oh, I did remember one other thing. Yeah. Back to the awesomely horrible wife and her husband. Yeah, in the mirror story. At one point, he says, want to go, want to get dressed up and spend a lot of money? And she goes, why not? What should we do tonight? Dress up, spend a lot of money. Why not? <laughs> and then, which is awesome in itself. It's like a caricature of rich people. It's yeah, so they're, they're totally yuppies. <laughs> so then they go to this place, and it's this restaurant with dancing and live music and i got really sad because we don't have those anymore yeah uh-huh like yes you. i'm can sure they dancing, exist some places yeah but, but not like not, fancy not get dressed fancy, up exactly. it's no you spend an hour working on your makeup and clothes and you're wearing short skirts that show off your booty and the dudes are wearing what jeans and a t-shirt and you go and you rub your crotch on somebody's butt like that's what we have today (laughs) or there's the country music places which are gross and i don't like them (laughs) uh sorry people who are listening or you're just at a concert like you you don't go to a fancy sit-down restaurant and And then have a dance floor yeah uh dance we just don't know the right people we're not rich kelsey why can't we be One last thing, there is a book called Elizabeth Welch, Soft Lights and Sweet Music. Elizabeth Welch is a credited actress in the film. She plays Beulah. Beulah is the club owner in France where the ventriloquist is working. 
Oh, because she sings that horrible, weird song. Yeah, it's a very weird song. It's really weird. But in this book, Elizabeth Welch, Soft Lights and Sweet Music by Stephen Bourne, he posits that Elizabeth Welch's character, Beulah, is the first in all of any major motion picture. It is the first film to depict a successful and independent black woman. In the history of film. So successful and independent that Elizabeth Welch's name actually shows up in the credits with everyone else. With these huge actors at the time. Including the golf buddies that everyone knew. Like her name was with them. It was it was a revolution for, for black actresses was her appearance in this movie. I thought that that was a pretty neat little anecdote. That is Dead of Night. Kelsey, we've talked a long time about this. Well, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff we're going to end up cutting out. But just <laughs> so you guys get a little insight, we've recorded an hour and 18 minutes worth of audio content that I'm going to have to edit down to hopefully 45 minutes. I got to take half an hour out of this thing. There's probably a lot more than a half hour to take out. We'll find out. <laughs> You'll find out right now, whatever the time it says on your podcasting device of choice. Kelsey, hmm. Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think it got? I would hope that it got an 85. 97. Wow. 97. Wow. Now, it has 29 reviews and only one of them is listed as rotten. Now, of course, again, Rotten Tomatoes supports reviews at any time. So these aren't reviews from when the movie first came out. Unfortunately, I don't have really anything to share about reviews when they first came out. But this is a very popular movie. The audience score was 87. So a little bit closer to what you said. Do you think maybe a little bit overrated? Yeah, I'd probably go with 89 is what I would give it. Sure. Yeah, no, it's it was really good, especially for a movie done in 1945. It's pretty incredible. I'm surprised we don't talk about this movie more often than we do. Yeah, I mean, I had heard of it. The reason that we watched it is because it's been on a couple of lists that I've read or watched and it's always sounded really interesting to me. Yeah. So, but well, that's why I wanted to see it initially. And then I picked it specifically because it had a Christmas vignette. And I didn't, I, we, when we watch movies that we've never seen, we try not to read a lot about yeah. it. Chris won't even let us watch the trailers. No. They're so, much more fun to watch after the fact anyway. So... It's not like we're going to decide not to watch it. I wasn't aware that the vignette was such a short little clip. Uh-huh. But, no, I thought it was fantastic. The only reason I'm not giving it, like, a 95 is because it is quite long and slow at some parts. Yeah. There's a lot, there's, it is very There's a lot long. of stuff they could have edited out, I think. Right, without taking out entire vignettes. Yeah, yeah, they didn't need to take out an entire vignette. They could have taken out a couple minutes from each one and it would have been much better. But it's fantastic. It's great. If I had to pick one, I guess I would pick the golfing. Yeah, because it's the silly one. It's the only one that kind of stuck out like, this doesn't really fit with the It just others. seems like it'd be in an episode of a comedy somewhere. Like, No, it reminded me a lot of... It's that stupid creep show. Yeah. Reminded creep show. Yeah. I'm not a big creep show fan. <laughs> it has elements that I like about it, but not many. Yeah. All right. That was 1945's Dead of Night. Next up is a movie that 
wasn't released stateside until August of 2017, but was actually released in Australia in June of 2016 at the Sydney Film Festival called Red Christmas. Kelsey, do you know anything about Red Christmas and what it's about? I think it's about a woman on Christmas Day having to defend her family from something. That is pretty good. I think we're just going <laughs> to... We're just going to stop it right there. A woman has to defend her family from something on Christmas. So pause now, go watch it however you can get your hands on it. And when we come back, we'll talk about 2016's Red Christmas. This is a content warning for the topic of abortion. This movie is very, very heavily mired in that topic and if this is something that is going to affect you negatively kelsey and i recommend that you don't listen to the rest of this episode Uh, go ahead and wait for our next episode which is going to be about 1972's home for the holidays and 2016's better watch out right so that will be next week We just want to let you know that uh, we love and care about you and we don't want you to have to deal with anything that might cause you trauma. So recommend that you just come back next week and we'll be here and we'll be talking about those two new movies. So if you're still sticking around, we're going to talk about 2016-17's Red Christmas. Come on in. Oh, Jenny, my fair sister. Hands in the oven, presents in 15 minutes. This year, I thought before we opened presents, it would be nice if we went around and said what we're grateful for. Perhaps Peter could lead us in a present. A goddamn church. And here I thought this would be so easy. I know how hard it can be starting a family late in life. Mm. You're on the clock, buddy. <laughs> What was Red Christmas about? Red Christmas was about a family in Australia. Yes. On Christmas Day. Yes. And a stranger shows up and terrorizes the family. Why does the stranger terrorize the family, Kelsey? So the movie begins with a woman in an abortion clinic. Yeah. And we see that there's obviously a lot of, in the news, a lot of people are fighting against abortion. And it's the slant that Christian people are really anti-abortion. So we see that a bomber comes in and bombs the hospital. And the baby has been removed and put into a biohazard bag and then kicked aside because there's a bomb. So then the guy who placed the bomb hears the baby cry and takes it home with him. So then cut to 20 years later and the, the stranger who shows up is the baby who survived. Yeah, it's Dee Wallace's baby. Which is, yes, and Dee Wallace, if you don't know, is the actress from, she's the mom from E.T. and I think she was in a couple other little things. 
But anyway, is it possible? Dee Wallace was in Cujo. Yeah. She was the mom in Cujo. She's also the mom from E.T. She's in The Howling and Critters. So she does a lot of horror movies, but also E.T., which she's most famous for. And I got to say, she was the best part of this movie. Yeah. She's I really great. enjoyed her. She's great. Yeah. But is it possible for a baby to be aborted and survive? Is that possible? I wouldn't know. I'm not an expert on the case. I think the point is, is that he's obviously deformed deformed and all of that because he was underdeveloped in the womb and then proceeded to develop. I imagine if you're at the point where you're that underdeveloped, that you're not even like a preemie, you wouldn't be able to survive outside of the womb. So I think the premise is flawed in that respect. But at first I thought, well, this movie certainly takes a stance And then I thought, wait, is it the opposite stance to the one I thought? And then you and I were kind of talking during the movie. No, it really doesn't take a stance on this issue. Yeah, it it really only uses it as a premise. Right. At first, it feels like it's totally against Christian upright extremists. Extremists. Yeah. But then later, it feels like, well, fuck this family. Because when he first shows up, we know that he's murdered. Yeah. But well, no, he hasn't murdered. Yes, he has. Who did he murder at this point? The guy who peed on oh, him? Oh, right. Yeah, but that guy had it coming. <laughs> okay, so we get to see him. So he's wearing like a cloak and all bandages. We don't get to see him until the very end. And you will, if you see the movie, you will wish that you never get to see what he looks like because it's bad. It's this is what really... happens when you want answers, Kelsey. I didn't want it. to. It's bad, but it's bad on purpose. I kind of knew it was going to be really bad. Right. I, I kept hoping But it's they obviously bad on it. purpose, though. Yeah. A lot of this movie is bad on purpose in that sort of camp sort of way. It reminded me of the reveal in Trick or Treat when we get to see what Sam looks yeah. like. Yeah, okay, absolutely. I, w- I would definitely agree with that. That's a good point. He looks ridiculous. It's this bizarre mask. Like, he has a giant head. You know who he looks like? a giant like? eye. He kind of reminds me of a Fealties in 300, who is the deformed hunchback character that betrays Leonidas because Leonidas didn't accept him. And so he betrays their location and their plans to... I kind of remember that. 300 was a movie that I really enjoyed watching, but... Obviously, it's more extreme with the big giant eye and everything like that, but he kind of, like, that shape of his hunchback kind of reminded me of the shape of his head. And the head's... Like, you wonder why the cloak is so big and you can see what would be his face, but that's just his nose and jawline. His mouth is actually much bigger, which is why he sounds so weird, uh, in addition to being muffled and not being very well educated and presumably having Down syndrome. But then, like, everything else is above that, where the cloak completely covers. So it just looks like the cloak goes up really high. But no, that's his whole head. He's, he, I think the idea is what kind of trauma style imagery could we use to display an aborted fetus that grew up? Yeah, this movie takes a turn. So when we see the whole bombing thing, it's t- it's done kind of tastefully. I mean, as tasteful as a bombing can be. Right. And then we see this family, this happy family in this little rural home, and it seems all well and good, and you're thinking that this is going to be a, a good horror movie. And then we meet our villain, essentially, the baby, and he is looking Cletus for... Cletus is his name. Cletus, that's right. He's looking for the house. 
and he finds this random dude and he starts talking to him and the guy just immediately is like you're a freak there's something wrong with you and he like punches him and then pees on him and that is what leads to Cletus killing him. Yeah, he... And he doesn't just kill him. He, like, rips off his dick. He rips off his dick. <laughs> and then grinds his face Into in... a saw. Was it a saw? Or... Yeah. Look, I thought it was a, um... Yeah, it's like, the round like a... no, saws. No, like a sharpening stone. Like the ones oh. that you sit uh, sit in front of and you sharpen your knives and stuff when you pedal. And it's just this stone that that's that's in the shape of a wheel and it goes around and you sharpen knives on it so he just ground his face into that it could be we don't actually see him do it we see it after we see the aftermath yeah but when the dick came off it was just like okay <laughs> yeah kelsey was like oh it's this movie okay yeah i, I specifically <laughs> said oh dear it's this kind of movie <laughs> Just ridiculous violence and gore. Yeah, and then you get to the to the first kill of the youngest daughter, and he takes an axe and he just splits her right down the middle. Which is totally impossible. Yeah. So. It's just that kind of movie. You know what you're in for at this point. Yes. But so, the guy shows up, and for some reason, I guess Dee Wallace takes pity on him. She lets him into their home. It's Christmas, she says. She says it's, she, she would feel bad turning him away when he seemed like he was obviously... Lost and confused. Yeah, lost, confused, maybe potentially homeless or or mentally ill or something. She would feel bad just turning him away. Which makes sense for her character because she does have a son with Down syndrome who she obviously loves and cares for. Yeah. And before he shows up at their house, we get to know the family. So we have a matriarch, D. Wallace. The father died earlier from cancer. Her brother is there, who's obviously an alcoholic slash pothead. Yeah. And then she has three children, two daughters and a son. The son with Down syndrome, like, loves Shakespeare or something. He's pretty cool. Yeah, no, he's awesome. I liked him a lot. And then she has a wild daughter who's pregnant with what I would assume is her boyfriend. We never really find out if he's her boyfriend or her husband. It doesn't really matter. And she's the wild and crazy one who likes to have sex in the middle of Christmas parties with her family. Uh-huh. And There's then the she, uptight one. Then she has the other daughter who is married to a priest who cannot get pregnant. They've been trying for six years, I believe they said. And she's very uptight, stick up her ass, etc. Yeah. And then the, did you mention the the punk artist? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. She has a fourth. She's the first one to die, so we don't get to know her a lot. Yeah, we barely get to meet her. We she's... know that she's allergic to peanuts. We and know that's she's about allergic it. to peanuts. <laughs> we know that she is an artist and that she's about to go to college. Yeah. And they're all together because this is the last time they're going to have a whole family Christmas at the family home. Because, because the mom is selling the house and going somewhere smaller where just for her, but she's using the extra cash to take a trip to Europe. Which she says is something that her husband wanted her to do. But her wild and crazy daughter hates her for it. Mm -hmm. Especially because they're going to be sending Jerry, the Down Syndrome son. To assisted living. To assisted living. And he seems to be cool with it because he's going to have a job there. And it it, it strikes me as as an opportunity for him to be more independent. And this is his equivalent of moving out of the house, basically. Yeah, and... Everything else that the daughter says is just ridiculous and bitchy and you don't like her. All of them are awful. Like, every single character is awful. I did kind of like Joe, the uncle, 
at at the beginning he seems like kind of a dick. But he then, is a but dick. Then, but then after that, yeah, because he's just this bum of a guy. Like he full on says, who's allergic to peanuts? Like, yeah. it, it, well, a <laughs> lot of people. One peanut is going to kill her? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, is. Yes, actually, it, it does. <laughs> that happens, so. Why can't the kid have a goddamn peanut? You know she's allergic. Jerry must have put him out by mistake. This what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, well, it's not like dirt on her knee. These could literally kill her. But <laughs> otherwise, like, he's really cool. As soon as the shit hits the fan, like, he takes he care the of patriarch. shit. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's, yeah, it's pretty great. And the mom, D. Wallace, is she super awesome. She was great, yeah. She made a lot she of really good decisions. Uh, yeah, well, she, what? She did a shitty thing in the eyes of the family and, and in the eyes of a lot of Selling people. Selling the house? Abortion. Oh, okay. She wanted to abort the child, and what we find out is because the kid was going to have Down syndrome, and she couldn't handle having a second child with Down syndrome. Because, well, specifically because the, because the father was going to die. He was terminal, and she couldn't raise a child with Down syndrome on her own with having a grown child. Well, not even grown, another young child with Down syndrome. Right, and I'm not, this is not saying that I am anti-abortion. I'm all for women's rights. I am pro-choice for sure. But that doesn't mean that there aren't qualms about it. That doesn't mean that you can't watch a film like this, which presents you with a, hey, what if this did happen? Mm -hmm. What if the kid did survive? How would you handle telling that kid, I didn't want you, I didn't love you? Having a kid who has Down syndrome as well, and he finds out and he reacts very poorly to it. Yes, he does. I mean, can you can you blame him? Like, obviously, he he can't rationalize the fact that, honey, we could talk about that later. There's a murderer here that's killing our whole family. He's not prepared or equipped to do that. All he can focus on is the fact that his mom had an abortion because she didn't want a child with Down syndrome. And that's as far as he can look. And uh, he reacts very negatively to that. But that's that's later on in the movie. So the family dynamic is very strained, and you think that the uptight one is at least going to be able to handle the situation, and she is not. She nope. She loses it. The wild and crazy one also loses it. Well, Understandably, she's pregnant. Her husband slash boyfriend dies, dies pretty qu- quickly, pretty early he on. Again? He gets an axe to the face or something like that. Is it? Oh, Okay. It, it wasn't very clear what was happening because, like, you see oh, the axe right. come down in front of Peter, the the priest, the uptight one. Scares husband. him. Yeah, and then it ends up they end they up had, killing the husband boyfriend guy and Scott. Not to mention she's pregnant. Yeah, totally. Hormones are going mm-hmm. crazy. You have another child who has Down syndrome who's not well equipped to handle this situation. So the only one who the only two people who keep their shit together is the mom and Joe. the uncle. And that's pretty impressive considering that the mother just saw her baby girl killed on the lawn. No, 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 she just saw her dead on the lawn. Nobody saw her yeah, get killed. Yeah, nobody saw her get killed. Because she's out there putting stuff away and she sees this jar that they had given to him filled with peanuts. So before he leaves, he desperately wants to read this letter. Yeah, and they, and they keep, don't they let keep him interrupting read him and be like, let's do this, let's do that. And he's just like, I would well, like to outs- read my letter. It's an outspoken family, and they... They don't like that she let him in. Right, and so they're just saying, like, what is this? This is ridiculous. Now, I think... 
in a lot of cases, very many people would probably be thinking that. It's a completely different thing to just say it out loud in front of that person. They're they're pretty big jerks at this point in the movie. But I mean, understandably, I probably wouldn't have let him in. I probably would have called authorities to help him to aid yeah. him. Uh-huh. But anyway, I wouldn't have let him in the house. Right. Yeah, I probably I might have like stayed outside with him on the porch. Hey, can you call somebody to help this man and then like talk to him outside? But that's about as far as it w- I would have gone. And the whole time, you feel really bad for him. Now again, you've seen him kill, but justified the dude was an asshole <laughs> and he deserved to die so then he peed on him <laughs> yeah so then he just wants to read the letter and i'm like oh my god people let him read the goddamn letter i'd like to read my letter but then as we said he's obviously not he was brought up within the religious cult and we get to see like one scene of it it wasn't even in a cult it was just with the dad who who quote unquote rescued him and his dad ends up killing himself i think is the implication they never really because tell at the us. well at the end of that flashback you see him strapping a bomb to his yes. chest or whatever so you assume he's going to suicide bomb another clinic yeah leaving this boy alone and he's been raised as an extremist and very anti-abortion which is i mean he's the product of that so you could see why and yet he really wants to just find his mother. Right. And and get the answer. Do you love me? Yeah. Just I just want you to say you love me. That's all I want. But he doesn't say it that way. No. Instead, he reads a letter which sounds very much like anti-abortion and... He uses terms that are the only terms he knows. Mm-hmm. You know, terms Don't like... Don't say them. <laughs> well, he calls them murderers and stuff like that. Like, that's oh. that's the only perspective he's ever... Thought you were gonna no. say the other word. What other word? You don't remember it? It's okay. We don't need to say it. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, because I, I don't know, Scott was obviously a person of color. I don't know That's exactly not, what he, he was. He brought it up but... because they gave him the gift. No, no, I know why he brought it up. But oh. I'm saying why they like they got really upset. Like they have a person in the room who who is a person of color. Who, I don't know what he is yeah. specifically. I mean, it's in Australia. He could be any number of things. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about the three wise men. And he uses a pretty archaic and term. awful term. And they get upset. And, and the priest is just like, right, but he's talking about, like, yeah, we don't use that term. But, like, yeah, oh, yeah, you're talking about the three wise men. And he, he's explaining why we get gifts. But before you all start thinking that the priest is probably the good and savior character, uh, you should know that he has some fucked up sexual issues. You're reading a lot into that. He see, He's really repressed, I think, is the issue. <laughs> he's probably not getting a lot of satisfaction from his uptight wife, who obviously is not getting a lot of satisfaction from him either. <laughs> but, you know, he sees the two of them having sex, the pregnant woman and Scott, having sex in the laundry room, and he gets a closer look he or whatever. He stoops down to look through the peephole. Uh-huh, and then he goes upstairs and masturbates. I'm not down with <laughs> peeping toms. I think they're fucking weird. Yeah, anyway, totally. Anyway... Sorry if you're into that. Anyway. <laughs> hey, consent is all I'm, all I'm asking for. Yes, they did not give him consent. Right. And then there's something. There, he touches the husband, boyfriend, or something. He does something odd. No, you thought because he, she come, the, the wife comes outside, the pregnant daughter comes outside, 
and and he's staring at him at his ass yeah it's his nice ass isn't it or something like that and yeah well it's a reference to the fact that his ass was hanging out when they were having sex and that's what he was seeing when they were having sex well, I, I and they they never address it again so it's kind of unimportant it... anyway so he's reading this letter and this letter is trying to express this is who i am yeah She's not buying it. Dee Wallace just freaks out. As soon as she finds out what he's talking about. She wants him out. Yes. Two decades ago, my father extinguished the lives of two child murderers at the Northland Medical Clinic. What do you want? Pardon my reading. I am slow. Oh, I think you know exactly what you're doing. Because she was there. She was a victim of a, a, a bombing at a clinic. Also, she doesn't want her children to know that she had an abortion because she lied and told them all that she had a... A miscarriage, miscarriage. yes. Yeah. So that turns him. He's yeah. like, all right, fine. If you well, don't want me, I'm going to take was, away your he's family. He's really emotional. He, he runs away through the woods and he, you can hear him. He's like panting and crying and he's really upset. And so he decides, all right, then I'm... If you don't want me... And I'm your child. I'm you. Don't get to have any other children either. It's and basically so, retribution, vengeance. Yeah. And basically him saying, "Okay, well, if you were willing to kill me, then I will kill your other children." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where the movie has the movie goes back and forth with whose side it's on, which is why I ultimately it's, it's said very agnostic. It, it has to be a it's, neutral. It's agnostic. Yeah. Uh-huh. It does not say. That necessarily, like, that D. Wallace was in the right for having an abortion. The, to hear the director describe the premise, he just says, it's a movie about an aborted fetus who comes to kill his family. It's about an aborted fetus that returns and kills its family. <laughs> of course, it's going to be terrible. Like, that, he just thought that that was a cool premise. Yeah. I don't think it has a message of any sort. <laughs> yeah, and I liked this movie. I kind of did. I liked it a lot. Because it was very unique and very interesting yeah, yeah. and different. And, and I thought fresh. there was there was some surprisingly good acting from a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. There's definitely some talent here. And shit looked bad, not because they couldn't pull it off. This is a very low-budget movie. Not because they couldn't pull it off, but because that's what they wanted to create. They wanted that sort of extreme... Tromaness. But it's problematic when you take something that's such a controversial topic. Sure, and yeah. something that affects so many people. And, yeah. then you, and then you just kind of say, I'm just going to use this as a premise for my bad horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's problematic. Totally, totally. totally. <laughs> but totally. all the kills are pretty great, pretty crazy. Not and inventive. Great. Not, not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're pretty inventive and interesting. But... I'm not a fan of bizarre, over-the-top murders. It's just not my thing. And which sounds strange because I love slashers so much, but this isn't this doesn't qualify as a slasher in my eyes. Why is this that? is very over-the-top deaths. Like like we said, one girl uh, an axe goes straight through her body. A guy's well, it's dick an over gets the pulled top. off. It's an over-the-top slasher. But it's still a slasher. But when it's, it's about so one ridiculous. predator hunting down in members of a family and killing them, it's it's a slasher movie, sure. It turns me off though because it's just like, yeah, this is gross and weird. And then he ends up 
hitting the priest with a car at one point, which I thought was very strange because he would have been respectful to the priest, I would have thought. No, he wasn't in the car. He was driving the car. No, the 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 uncle had, was was slumped over, and he caused the car to go, and it just drove off, oh. and it and it hit Peter the priest. So we absolutely hated the pregnant lady because of her. She gets a lot of them killed when they didn't need to. Yeah, she's she she's obviously going through a lot. She has a reason why she behaves the way she does, but she's pretty awful through the entire movie. So they, at one point, they all run into the shed, and the uncle goes out to get the car. Ends up, it's not really her fault because he's in the car. The The killer is in the car, so it doesn't, yeah. it's not really her fault. But she runs out before the plan has gone through because she wants her husband, and she starts yeah. screaming his name and Even running out. he's already dead, and she knows it. And she's putting them all in danger. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she's not thinking about the fact that I'm putting all of my family in danger. Right. So then she goes into labor, understandably, based yeah, on sure, all stress. the shit that's yeah. happening. Uh-huh. And she's, she's very far along, and then the stress obviously made her go into labor. And the priest, I guess, had experience with giving birth? With, yeah. Which I, they don't ever explain that. I, I think it was, he did it once. I don't they think don't they say. really say. It doesn't matter. So D. Wallace wants him to help her give birth. But the girl's like, I'm not letting him anywhere near me. So then the mom goes to the sister and says, okay, you just need to help her get through this. And the sister has shut down. This is the uptight sister who is like freaking out and can't handle the situation. Eventually she does. But it's very upsetting because it's like this woman, Dee Wallace, is just doing everything she can to save her children. And all of her fucking children are useless yeah. <laughs> in this mm-hmm. situation. <laughs> and Jerry, I mean, it's, you can't blame him. He has Down syndrome. But he does constantly do things that also mm-hmm. put them in danger. Even even Peter did a pretty admirable job of, you know, helping out. He, he did some stupid stuff. Yeah. But he was brave in a lot of instances. He prays point, with him. Yes. So, okay. And he's the one who kind of reveals what she did when he was told in confidence what happened. At one point, he becomes a total coward, though. And I can't remember when that is. When he starts walking away and he could have helped save They're both somebody. outside. And he 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 runs inside or something like that. Yeah. He, yeah, he without, does without have a total Wallace, coward yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. cowardly moment but yes there so, are a lot of flaws with all the characters at one point he's alone with the killer and he says you know like let's pray together and there's so many times when the killer could be subdued just by words but understandably these people are like we need to kill him we need yeah, to get rid uh-huh. of him i understand that and i do believe those scenes but it sucks because we as the audience know that if they just kept it up, uh-huh. they could get him to stop. Right, yeah. So the priest prays with him, tells him, you know, like, well, tells God in this instance that, yes, it was wrong what D. Wallace's character did and that Cletus was hurt by her. But that Cletus and, was still in the wrong. Right, yeah. And he does ask for forgiveness. He says, I'm yeah. sorry. And so as soon as he does say he's sorry, the priest stabs him. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Cletus? Uh, sorry.
like he's asked for forgiveness at this point as far as and he's obviously taken Jesus into his heart. So as far as the the Christian priest is concerned, he's going to go to heaven at this point. So he's like, great, perfect timing, knife to the chest. And it doesn't kill him. No. And instead, he <laughs> they break a blender which has been turned on and his hair gets caught and pulls his head back into the blades of the blender, mixing up his brains. And you see his eye it's twitching, disgusting. getting mixed up, and then it pops out and see, all the blood gushes out. Shit, like... Because it was funny. It wasn't there to be like, oh, can you can you handle this? Right. No, Aren't it's we not, edgy? It was not no, torture it was, porn. It was but, just funny. Yeah, and I don't like that stuff. That's fine. That's, that's fine. trauma I, stuff, I, I'm, and I'm it not is. into it's it. very trauma-y. <laughs> so eventually, like we said, Jerry finds out because he hears the prayer yeah. that his mom killed him because he was had Down syndrome. So... The, br- the son, Jerry, goes after his mom with the gun and she's explaining to him, no, I love you. I did everything I could for you. It just wasn't going to work out with me having another child with right, my, my father, my, my husband it. killed. Yeah. Did you abort Clitus because he got Down syndrome? Yes. But your daddy and I loved you. We wanted you. And... Jerry kind of understands, but he's still, but he's still upset. And, and he leaves the gun with her. Mm-hmm. He's like, you want to kill me too? You know, and he hands the gun to her, right? And he eventually just runs away. And then, because now he feels a kinship with his brother, he gives his Santa hat to the killer. Yeah. Which makes her think, when she sees him, because all she can see is the Santa hat, that it's him. So when she hears someone running, she thinks it's the killer. Uh-huh. She thinks her son is sitting in the living room and she thinks her the killer is coming after her. And so she shoots and kills the thing that comes after her, yes. Who ends up being Jerry. Jerry. Which is it's, a real big bummer. It's really sad. Like it takes a dark turn. And no, yeah, it's it was I mean, yeah, you didn't want him to die, and yeah, it was a really shitty death, but like the reaction, like, no, they take this very seriously. Like her D. Wallace does a really good job of reacting to the death of her children and trying to protect the ones that are still alive. And she does that throughout the movie. And that's another part of the biggest problem with this movie for me is that it went back and forth between tones. Yeah. And I don't like that. You need to pick a tone and you need to stick with it. It's scared and freaking out and aggressive and heroic, but you're a scaredy cat. Like all these characters fluctuate back and forth between these different moods, which realistic sometimes sure sometimes it's used just for the movie and it's very obvious that it's being used just for the movie and it that's that's hard for me to watch because it's like what do you want me to be feeling movie you go from being absolutely absurd to being really serious really serious and haunting and to being a good horror movie like it just it goes all through these different stages and it's it takes me out of it. Including stabbing the woman who recently gave birth as she's hiding in a giant stuffed teddy bear. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, so it. this movie is all over the place with tone. You're right. That, that's a good point. That was his biggest flaw for me. So where the movie ends up is everyone is dead at this point after See, he stabs the teddy bear. Oh, he tries to strangle her outside. He thinks he killed her. And he her. thinks he killed her. So he would have killed the very last person, 
which is the 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 pregnant daughter who just gave birth and he stabs her in the giant teddy bear and she falls over and he sees he finds the baby and he's about to turn on the baby when D Wallace shows up back up with the anchor wrapped around her neck still and just stabs him swings into his body with the sharp pointy end of the anchor and then just runs crashes through the upstairs window outside tearing apart his insides and uh hanging herself Mm -hmm. the only living person at the end of this is ironically a newborn baby which kind of plays into the whole what stance are you taking on abortion? Right. And again... That's a very anti-abortion stance to have the baby being the only thing that lives and everyone else dying. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. it it constantly makes you feel for for Cletus. And then it constantly makes you feel for the family. Yeah. And you don't know who's on the right side. You know, I think you just... you, You chalk it up to it's a lot more complicated than either side would have you think. Yes. While I am pro choice, that does not mean... That I don't have any issues with it. Right. No, it sucks, but there's a difference between, you know... There's just too many reasons to say that we should be allowed to have choice. Right, yeah. There's way too many reasons. So, this movie was rather difficult in that respect to watch. Yeah. Because it constantly made me question myself and made me feel bad about my my feelings. But I still was like, no, you're not going to change my mind about this. And then at the end, it just feels like they never really took a stance. And they're playing with my emotions and they don't actually intend to. That wasn't their intention. Yes. (laughs) And in the end, with the baby surviving, it does. It feels like it's anti-abortion. But it's really not. Yeah. That's really not an issue that they're handling. It's not a stance. He just thought it would be cool to have a story about an aborted fetus who grows up to kill its family. But that is not to say that this movie isn't somewhat awesome. Yeah. Parts of it are really cool. Are really great. Mm-hmm. And parts of it are scary, and parts of it have you on the edge of your seat. We seats. didn't mention the director's dad. I should say this movie was written and directed by Craig Anderson, who funded it independently. And that's his dad plays the sheriff who actually shows up because they do call the cops. And he gets a bear trap over the head, which closes down on his throat and the top of his chest or something like that and that's a pretty violent death mm-hmm. that, that was uh that was pretty neat so he's in this movie too he gets a little cameo craig anderson the writer and director he also made a documentary with some of the crew i don't know specifically who made the documentary called horror movie a low budget nightmare about how difficult it was to get this movie made because there were a lot of things that went on that almost shut everything down and almost sent him to the poorhouse. It was just something he wanted to do. He wanted to make his own movie. He's done a lot of, he's directed, he's written, he's acted in a lot of like TV shows and shorts. And he just wanted, the only thing he wanted to do was make a movie for himself. (laughs) And this is it. And it finally got made. And I'm sure he's very proud of that. But there's a whole other story, which is the the making of. Apparently, it was a pretty big nightmare. (laughs) Well, I certainly hope that our listeners watch this movie. I think it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, just keep in mind, it's extremely violent to the point of silliness. It tackles some very rough issues. But it's, but parts of it are fun yeah and parts of it are scary and parts of it are just good to watch like 
I went through a roller coaster when I think about this movie because it's like, I really loved this part. I really hated this part. Really loved this part. Really hated this part. I would definitely recommend it. And if you're into silly, gory stuff, this is for you. And if you're into interesting, unique ideas, this is for you. The only thing that I would hope you would take away from this before you actually watch it, if you listen to this before you see it, is not to focus on the abortion issue. I wish I had just let it go because it kept bothering me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had. I had, but it's not easy for everybody. It's a very, very difficult topic to think about and discuss. Is that all the topics you want to talk about for the movie? Lightning round. Okay. What do you want to talk about? So... At one point, they're trying to think of something to do, and somebody says, let's play charades, which made me think. Um, right. Sure. Oh, what fun charades. <laughs> Such fun charades. So when he sees them having sex. Yeah. It's a really awkward, awkwardly. Joe catches him. <laughs> well, yeah, but before that, why is he standing in the hallway? He's just randomly standing he there. He hears the noises. But we don't get to see that. All we see is him standing weirdly in the no, hallway he's like walking down the hallway and it's like he he's trying to like what's the noise coming from and he he sees them there were other issues with this movie with pregnancy the pregnant lady smokes and drinks yeah throughout the film yep so the the modern accepted medical knowledge as far as i'm aware is that it is okay for a pregnant woman to have a glass of wine. a glass of wine occasionally mm -hmm. but this woman obviously isn't holding to that maxim she is she does shots yeah she, she smokes, smokes cigarettes and weed and weed yeah it's she's they give you reasons to hate almost everybody here and if you are pro-life they give you reason to hate d wallace even because otherwise like she's a pretty great character yeah at one point the uptight chick and her priest husband hold each other and it is the most awkward hug they like don't actually touch bodies they like only touch their arms to uh -huh. one another yeah what the fuck is everyone's problem with adoption yeah like just you you really want a child that bad and you don't want to go the route of in vitro fertilization adopt mm -hmm. for the love of god adopt everyone out there if you want a child and you're not all hung up on it being your own flesh and blood, just adopt. Mm -hmm. So when the sister dies, when the first sister dies, yeah, it takes a while for anyone to be like, I wonder where the sister is. Because the other two sisters are having like a full-blown fight. That's another thing. She fights while she's pregnant too. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, she's going to have a, like, she's going to fall over. Like you're getting into a physical fight with a pregnant woman. Like, why does this matter so much to either of you? It's, yeah, it was, they're really obnoxious. <laughs> what are they fighting about? They're fighting about whether to put the pie in the refrigerator or leave it out. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's, you know, a juxtaposition. These two are having this fight over a fucking pie while the sister is being murdered by a kid who was aborted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the juxtaposition uh -huh. is nuts. But it's just like nobody seems to care or notice where the, the other sister is. So there's that. At one point, the pregnant sister is on the bed talking to her boyfriend or husband or whoever the hell he is, and she touches her stomach, and it totally moves. <laughs> and 
oh. made me laugh so hard. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you gotta be careful about that stuff, man. You wanna make movies. You gotta, you gotta pay attention to that shit. Oh, and she takes the pills. So the uptight sister gives her pills because she's freaking out because her husband boyfriend yeah, dies. Uh-huh. Like this baby is fucked. Well, I mean, during birth, people get epidural. Yeah. So I mean, it's not necessarily okay. It's an injection into the spine. It's not necessarily good for the child. <laughs> so Kelsey, what? This is gonna be a tough one. I think maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know how many people have critiqued it. What do you think? Red Christmas got from Rotten Tomatoes. I will tell you how many people reviewed it. Don't look at the computer screen. I am not looking. There are 16 reviews counted. This is hard because it's... You have to think about how the people are reviewing it. Are they reviewing it from the perspective of, wow, that was really low budget and shitty? Or are they reviewing it from the perspective of, of this had really awesome elements, or are they reviewing it from the uh, perspective of not the right thing to use as a premise? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to guess because of the different ways people could have taken it, that it probably got somewhere around 66%. 44. Wow. Underrated? Underrated. What would you give it? I'd probably give it a 70. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'll give it a 70. Certified fresh. I want to read you some of the review excerpts. The Hollywood Reporter, who is listed as a negative review, says, Gory and offensive, but lacking in the scare department. The Los Angeles Times critic, Noel Murray, says, Mostly, it's a tightly constructed, unapologetically nasty little thriller, given depth and weight by Wallace's interpretation of a sweet woman suffering from her past. Which is good, because D. Wallace is really great in this movie. Yeah, uh, which is funny, because on the other end, Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Craze calls it a nasty, unpleasant, poorly constructed, and confused movie I was anxious to see end. This person says poorly constructed, but Variety's Eddie Cockrell calls it an energetic, candy-colored romp through genre tropes that manages to take its subject matter seriously while poking fun at itself at the same time. Like, I think those positive reviews are pretty accurate, and I would agree with them. I think this movie was great. Uh, When I found out about the documentary, it made me really want to see that, because it looks like there's a lot of interesting conflict and behind-the-scenes stuff, and it revealed to me that this was, like, a passion project for Craig Anderson, and it made me really happy that it just existed. So, good on you. Craig Anderson. You haven't said what you would give it. I'd probably give it like a 70 sounds great. So this was one hell of a week that we had here with this <laughs> with this week. We had Dead in the Dead of Night or Dead of the Night. Dead of Night. Dead of Night uh, from 1945, which was a pretty unassuming, pleasant, good 1945 creepy movie i liked it a lot (laughs) and 2016's red christmas which was all over the place but i still liked it but still really liked it Mm -hmm. so very very interesting i'm weak yeah i'm personally a little emotional because this is also the same week that i edited black christmas which was last week's episode and i'm so mad at myself for how that turned out 
Listen, I'm sorry if it was really bad. When we were recording it, I was really excited for that because I thought that our energy and the topic, we I love that movie. I love the way we were talking about it. And I was really excited to get that one in the can. And then I start editing it and I'm like, oh, no. Because <laughs> we realized at the end of recording the second segment – I realized that I was like, oh, don't be mad at me, but I've been recording through the laptop mic. So that really sucked. And then when I went to edit, I realized, oh, the first segment's like that too. Fucking great. (laughs) This was going to be my favorite episode. And now it has an asterisk next to it. So that's a real big bummer. But I hope you listen to it anyway. If you haven't, go back and listen to our double feature on Black Christmas. Next week, though, Kelsey, what are we watching? Next week is another week of movies we have not seen. Christmas movies? Yes. So this was the first week that we both watched both movies that neither of us had ever seen. And next week will be our second time around. We will be watching 1972's Home for the Holidays and 2016's Better Watch Out. I'm excited. So come on back next week. In the meantime, you can reach us at podcemetery at gmail.com. If you want to write in, we'll be reading emails and answering any questions or responding to comments. You can also contact us at podcemetery on Twitter, where I'm trying to convince Kelsey to start live tweeting some of the movies that we're watching. I might do that this week. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes, because a lot of the time we end up getting inebriated, so I think that would be kind of fun. But it would be difficult to take notes while I'm doing it. Plus, I don't understand why people would want to read my tweets and then listen to the podcast. I have already started doing some tweets. I admit I don't do it very often because a lot of our time is spent watching these movies and editing these things (laughs) and talking about those movies. But occasionally I am by myself and sometimes I put on horror stuff and I do tweet about it. So So maybe she'll be live tweeting other movies that we might not be covering. Oh, I already have. And that's what what my plan was. But I will try it this week and we'll see if anybody's listening. We'll see how it goes. That being said, this has been Pod Cemetery. My name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And as we say at the end of every episode of Pod Cemetery, I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. Hold me tight. Oh, hold me tight. <laughs> love it. I love it. So good. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life. To the sacred place to see the dream. Because your kiss, your kiss is on my list. Because your kiss, your kiss is what I miss. Because your kiss is on my list of the best things in life.